Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Have you ever wondered what you would do if you saw an animal left unattended in a car on a hot day? Maybe this has happened to you already and you've dealt with it, but perhaps you really have not thought it through and anticipated how to deal with what can be an urgent and stressful situation. Remember, how you react might mean the difference between life or death for that dog. There's a cute photo that is making it around on the internet as a meme. It shows a dog sitting in the front seat of a car and the window is closed. And attached to the inside of the window is a message printed on a large piece of paper which states, please don't break the window. The AC is on, he has water, and is listening to Steely Dan. Now, whatever you think about the dog's taste in music, this image and its popularity brings up the points that leaving animals in hot cars is an issue that is on our minds, and that the owner is aware enough to protect his dog and his vehicle. I'll post the picture on this show's blog. But with summer almost upon us, it's worth reminding everyone that it doesn't take much for the temperature inside a car to become dangerously hot very quickly. Many people are unaware of just how fast the interior of a vehicle can heat up, even if the outdoor temperature is comfortable. Here's some basic facts from the humane side of the United States. When it's only 72 degrees outside, the temperature inside a car can heat up to 116 degrees in less than an hour. And when it's 80 degrees outside, the temperature inside a car can reach 99 degrees in 10 minutes. That's less than the amount of time it takes most people to run into a store. Many people think that rolling down the windows is all that they need to do. But for example, on an 85 degree day, with the windows open slightly, the temperature can reach 120 degrees in 30 minutes. That's a death trap for dogs. Some of you may remember that I had California Assemblyman Mark Steinorth on the show back in August of 2017. And to illustrate just how hot it can get inside a car, Assemblyman Steinorth and two of his fellow Assemblywomen took the hot car challenge. They took a timer and a thermometer, locked themselves inside a car for 21 minutes on a day when it was 89 degrees outside, and documented how quickly the temperature inside the car became unbearable. Within 12 minutes, the temperature in the car was 101 degrees. By the time they had been in the car for 21 minutes, the temperature had reached 108 degrees, and the three occupants were awfully sweaty and uncomfortable. Boy, did they ever want to get out of that car. And if you've not seen this video, check it out online. It's called A California Assemblyman Steinorth Takes Hot Car Challenge. Okay, so it's an interesting experiment to see how people react to a very warm environment. But remember, dogs' tolerance to heat is not nearly as good as humans. If it feels hot to you, it feels a lot hotter to dogs. Think for a moment what your dog does after coming in from a walk on a hot day. Both of our dogs right away will lie on the cool kitchen tile. And sometimes one of them parks herself right in front of a fan. Whichever they choose, they let their tongues hang way out and pant. Contact with the tile cools by conduction, where direct contact draws the heat away. And the fan helps cooling by convection, where the airflow moves the heat from the animal. But as we know, panting is the primary way dogs cool themselves. And unlike humans, in which the skin perspires, which creates cooling from evaporation, dogs do not really perspire. They pant but it's not nearly as effective as the human mechanism to stay cool in the heat. And by the way, brachycephalic dogs, which are flat-faced, short-nosed dogs like Pekingese or Pugs or Boxers, have the weakest ability to cool themselves by panting. So it doesn't take much for these dogs to get overheated.
Now, in a hot car, things really can break down quickly. When the surfaces of the car, like the seats, get warmer than the animal, no conductive cooling can occur. And the dog's panting itself can even contribute to the rising temperature in the vehicle. Plus, the dog's fur can trap heat, making things worse. If a dog is panting heavily, it's because he's already overheated or rapidly approaching that point. Symptoms of heat stroke in dogs include restlessness, excessive thirst, thick saliva, heavy panting, lethargy, lack of appetite, dark tongue, rapid heartbeat, fever, vomiting, bloody diarrhea, lack of coordination, as well as high fever, muscular weakness, and even absence of panting. But keep in mind that it can be very difficult to assess through the vehicle's windows if a dog is indeed developing heat stroke. And there's no magic formula for how long a dog can stay in a hot car before she develops heat stroke. And here's an important point. We know that heat stroke can quickly kill a dog. But in cases that are not fatal, a two degree rise in body temperature can cause permanent organ and brain damage. This is something even an expert observer may not be able to reliably assess by looking through the window. And there's a point at which even a vet cannot reverse the effects of heat stroke. So for sure, you don't want to allow the situation to go on too long. Heat stroke is a very dangerous condition that takes the lives of hundreds of animals in the U.S. every year. And a bit later, I'm going to talk about how to cool down a hot dog. So what should you do if you see a dog left in a car on a hot day? I live in the hot desert of Southern California, and I can tell you I've had to remove dogs from hot cars numerous times. I actually keep a tool in my car that is made specifically for breaking a car window in an emergency. There are several different types which you can research online and buy one and leave it in your car. It may be useful someday. Some of them also include seatbelt cutters, which you'll be happy about in case you need to extricate yourself from a bad situation. One of my animal advocate friends keeps a small shovel in her trunk just in case, and I suppose that would work as well. Sometimes you just need to use what's at hand, such as a nice sized rock, and more on that later. So how to proceed. If time permits, the Humane Society of the United States advises that you do the following. First, take down the car's make, model, and license plate number. Take some photos or videos. Take a picture of the dog in the car. Is the car in the shade? Is the car parked right in front of a store? And you could take a screenshot of your phone to have a record of the time you found the dog in the parked car. Next, if there are businesses nearby, notify their managers or security guards and ask them to make an announcement to notify the car's owner. I have found, and I bet you'll also find, that the store managers are eager to help. Next, and again, only if time permits, because remember, every minute that dog remains in the hot car lowers the chances for a good outcome. If the owner isn't found within a few minutes, call the local police or animal control and wait by the car for them to arrive. Keep the phone numbers to animal control and the police department programmed into your phone. I also think it's a great idea to recruit one or more people to help you and join the cause of saving the animal. Because if it comes down to needing to break into the car, having like-minded folks join you will provide moral support and the confidence that you're doing a just act. Plus, they can help you handle the dog once he or she is liberated and manage the situation with the owner and the authorities should they arrive. So, of course, the priority is helping the dog in the car. But you might want to learn what the local laws concerning animals in hot cars are. An increasing number of jurisdictions prohibit leaving pets in hot cars, and many grant immunity to Good Samaritans who rescue pets in these situations. 
For example, in 2017, Indiana became the ninth state to pass a Good Samaritan hot car law, allowing citizens to forcibly enter a vehicle under certain conditions to rescue companion animals confined inside. Presently, 12 states have similar hot car laws. But I can tell you, even without a law and from personal experience, it's very unlikely you will be cited by the police or sued by the owner if you take reasonable steps. And to the contrary, you probably will be considered a hero. Also, it's quite possible that by leaving the dog in a hot car, the owner has committed a crime. So if you're sure the dog is doing okay and you've called for help, then it's crucial that you stay on the scene and monitor the dog. And as I mentioned before, it's advisable to recruit others to wait with you. But if you've now determined it's time to get the dog out, let's talk about how to do it safely. Presuming that you've already determined all the doors are locked and you cannot reach into the car to open a door, and be careful if you try because the distressed dog may be very afraid and protective. Then it's time to decide what you're going to use to break the window and how to go about it. And just a reminder, make sure that you've taken the steps to document the situation and protect yourself and then do what you need to do to save the pet's life. So choose the window furthest away from where the pet is located in the vehicle. Have a leash or towel ready to prevent the released pet from bolting out of the vehicle. You don't want the pet to become more frightened or disoriented and get struck by a passing car or run off. And the car's alarm might go off and the noise could further scare the already distressed pet. I know people, including myself, who carry leashes in their cars in the event they need to rescue dogs, either from hot cars or dogs running loose on the road, so you can get into that habit as well. Now, there are a variety of tools designed to break car windows, and I'm going to tell you about them in a moment. But be aware, without them, it can be very hard to break a window. It really takes a lot of force if you use a rock or a bat. If you don't have one of the specialty tools I'm going to tell you about on hand, you'll need to try using whatever you can find, like that nice size rock, and use it to bash the window in near one of the window's corners rather than throwing it. And I guess a crowbar or a lug nut wrench might work as well. But like I said, it's going to take some force and some effort. There's a YouTube video where a police officer demonstrates breaking the window with one of those police-issue metal expandable batons and also a long flashlight. And in both instances, the window shattered easily with only a moderate strike to the corner of the window. Oh, and by the way, if possible, wear gloves when you do this, another handy item to keep in your car, to prevent injury from the glass or from the animal you're about to rescue. Anyway, the video goes on to show one of the specialty tools I mentioned before, collectively referred to as window punches. And the officer takes this small tool, window punch, which is a steel-tipped point, and with a bit of firm pressure to the corner of the window, it just shatters. If you've not seen one of these in action, it's a little surprising how easily they cause a window to shatter. So it's really worth keeping in your car or in your purse or even in your keychain. And as I said before, some of them also have a guarded blade in case you need to cut a seatbelt. You can find these online, and Amazon shows a variety of them, with one popular brand called Rescue Me. That's R-E-S, and then the letter Q-M-E. Another style looks like a pen, or actually is a pen. These are heavy-duty metal tools with sharp tips, and you just press into the window corner, and boom, it breaks. Okay, we're going to have to take a break now, but a lot more about hot dogs and cars when we're back. Animals Today fun facts for today are about prairie dogs. 
Despite their name, prairie dogs are not dogs, but members of the rodent family, like squirrels. They grow to be between 12 and 17 inches in length, and they weigh between two and four pounds. Prairie dogs are very social rodents that live in huge underground burrows called towns, where they can be tens of thousands of prairie dogs, and their tunnels can travel for miles in every direction. Prairie dogs are very affectionate towards each other and will spend a lot of time grooming each other. They will also touch noses when they approach each other like a little kiss. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Welcome back to the show. Before the commercial break, we were talking about ways to break into a car to save a dog. And we were describing how easy it is to break a window with these tools called window punches. And I'm telling you, you got to get a few of these. And as I was reading about window punches, I discovered a company I want to tell you about. It's called Mobile Glass, and it's based in Texas, and the website is mobileglassco.com. They have a program that will reimburse you the cost to replace a window that you smashed in the course of helping an animal, a child, anywhere in the country. Isn't that great? They say, quote, we want to do our part to help good Samaritans in a time of crisis. They have a video on their website as well, and the program is called Smash to Save a Life. It's really admirable. So in the unlikely event that the irresponsible owner whose pet you just saved insists you pay for the damages to his vehicle, that's where this program comes in. For you, the brave Good Samaritan, not for the idiot who put his animal's life in jeopardy. It's not there to compensate the irresponsible owners themselves. Now, I've had to remove dogs from people's cars numerous times over the years, and not once have I been cited by law enforcement or sued for breaking into the vehicle. And I will continue to do it without a second thought, because to me, the satisfaction of saving a life is the most crucial issue in this situation. If you do see that someone has left their dog unattended in the car on a warm day, even with the windows open, you know... It is your business. If you don't feel you can get the dog out for whatever reason, or you're uncomfortable taking this action, here's what I'd urge you to do. Let as many people as possible in the area know about the situation. Ask for help. Ask people to wait for you. Ask a couple of people to run into nearby stores and have the owner of the car paged. In the meantime, and as I said before, take the appropriate pictures. Ask if anyone has something in their car that could be used to break the car window and get the dog out. But if you've been paying attention, you're going to go online as soon as we're done here and order a few of those window punches so you'll have one with you. Remind the people around you how quickly we must act because brain damage and organ failure can occur as a result of heat stroke. And if you don't want to break the window, and if I'm not around, chances are someone else like me will jump at the opportunity to do it. By drawing attention to the situation, you'll gather support and help for the dog. You'll also make a clear statement to the dog's owner, should he or she return to the car, that they were wrong and their stupidity will not be tolerated. It's much harder for the owner to take on a group of 10 people and say, it's none of your business, than a single person. And like I said, in some states, good Samaritans can legally remove animals from cars if they have reason to believe those animals are in imminent danger. And if you want to know your state's current laws on rescuing animals from cars, the Animal Legal and Historical Center keeps track of this. Of course, I don't really care what the law says, but you might. 
When it comes to knowing whether or not the dog in the car is in imminent danger, sometimes you have to make a judgment call. If it's warm out, remember it can be 20, 30, or 40 degrees warmer in a parked car. And as I said, if you're feeling the heat, a dog is definitely feeling it more because she cannot cool her body as well as we can. And a final thought on people who leave their dogs in the car on a warm day. Besides all the risks to the dogs we've been ranting about, these people are putting the rest of us in the uncomfortable position of having to make a judgment call that may involve damaging their property to save an innocent living being. We didn't ask to be put in this situation, but these owners don't seem to care about the concerns of the people around them or their neighbors or their fellow citizens. They are not only ignorant, but are being socially irresponsible and just plain selfish. I want to tell you about this online video of a real rescue from a hot car that illustrates a few things. It's pretty short and we don't have the whole story, but there's a small white dog in a BMW sedan. The windows are cracked a bit and a pretty big guy has this large rock or maybe it's a piece of concrete and he's determined to get that dog out. With him are at least two adults, which is good. He has a concerned team and they're helping him to choose which window to smash. Also good. Plus, there's a lot of kids around watching and taking videos. So first, he tries to break the window by hammering the rock into the side rear window, moderately hard, but it just bounces off the glass three times. Then he tries the other rear window and throws it at the window, and again, it bounces off. Then tries again, even harder, and still no luck. And this is a big, strong-looking guy, maybe six feet, 220 pounds. Well, on the third try, the rock does indeed shatter the glass, and you can even see some of the glass flying outward, and he then opens the car door and takes the dog out, and fortunately, the dog is fine after getting out. What happens then is not shown, but it's really great this was caught on video. Now, I'm not going to argue with his method, but if you're not of his stature and you're in a pinch, you might first try to find a rock with a pointed end and strike the window in one of its lower corners first. But better yet, get a few of those window punches. So now let's talk about how to cool down an overheated dog, whether from a hot car or any cause. Maybe you encounter a dog that has been left outside on a hot day, or you inadvertently let your dog get overheated while taking a hike on a warm day, or, or whatever the circumstances. These simple tips apply. A few summers ago, we had a power outage that lasted all day long, and we're in the Southern California desert, and it was super hot outside that day, like maybe 112, 115, and as the day progressed and as it got warmer and warmer in the house, we got concerned about one of our dogs in particular, so we started cooling her down. So here's what the experts say to do if your dog has become overheated. First, move her to a cool area, preferably one with air conditioning. And at the same time, have someone call a veterinary hospital and tell them what's going on. Then, continue cooling the dog down by using cool water, not cold water. Cool water, either from a hose or by placing her in a child's swimming pool or by placing cool, damp towels on her body. And with the towels, concentrate on the head and neck, the areas underneath the front and back legs, the pads of the paws, and the groin area. Offer the dog cool, but not cold water to drink in small amounts. Don't force her to drink. And if the dog is unconscious, obviously don't put water in her mouth. And if the dog is unconscious or is really looking sick or has confusion or has had a seizure, if there's vomiting and diarrhea or labored breathing, get that dog to the hospital right away. And remember, don't use ice packs because bringing the dog's body temperature down too aggressively or too quickly can be very dangerous. 
Okay, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back. Visitors to Havasu Falls near Supai, Arizona, are drawn to its natural beauty and the soothing blue-green color of its pool. North of Flagstaff and at the southwest corner of the Grand Canyon National Park, the falls are not easy to get to and a long hike is required. Well, there is extensive use of pack animals, horses and mules, to move the requisite gear and the provisions down to the falls and back up, and now there's extensive documentation of severe and ongoing cruelty to these animals. With us today is Susan Ash, founder of SAVE. Susan, what is SAVE? SAVE is an advocacy group that was formed by me in February of 2016, after having heard numerous stories about the horrible, and I mean horrible, abuse of uh, pack animals by the Havasupai tribe in Grand Canyon, and hearing people say over and over again, well, there's nothing that can be done about it because it's sovereign land. I just got fed up hearing that and said, I'm sorry, but there has to be something that can be done. The word abuse doesn't really describe what these animals endure before they die. Well, describe the overall situation uh, and your main areas of concern. The animals are often forced to run up and down portions of a 16 to 18 mile round trip trail. They're heavily loaded with gear that often exceeds a reasonable weight for a healthy animal, let alone an underweight one. Temperatures in the summer often exceed 100 degrees at the top which is called uh, Wallapai Hilltop. They're given no water, no food, no shade, and are frequently tied up for hours and in some instances, even days. Horses in the village are seen wandering, scavenging for food. They have been observed eating cardboard and feces and rummaging through trash cans. The horses are often tied together using a come-along method. This is considered cruel and dangerous by any responsible packer. 
because an animal not keeping up will be choked by this method and entire strings have fallen off the trail together. Horses collapse frequently on the trail. They are kicked or otherwise beaten to make them get up. If they do so, then they must continue on the trail. If they don't, then they may be left on the trail to die, occasionally eaten alive by feral dogs or pushed over the side of the trail to certain deaths in the canyon. Injured, bleeding, emaciated horses are all worked. There is blood seen on the trail and on the tack used for packing. The worst is frequently hidden under the packs. Infected wounds, exposed bone all along the spine are not uncommon sites when pack saddles are removed. There is a photograph that we have of a very young foal frantically trying to run alongside its mother as she is forced up the trail packing. There is no oversight or enforcement of any standards of care or treatment for the pack animals by the Havasupai tribe. They make millions of dollars every year off of tourism, and there is a, a population of approximately 400 tribal members that live down there. So even when people hear, for example, that there are quote-unquote new standards in, that have been in place or put in place by the tribe, that is a very misleading statement, and it's misleading because, again, there's no enforcement of anything. So obviously it doesn't matter what kinds of words are written on pages if nothing is being enforced. There are no weight limits. There are no scales. There is no water at Hilltop, and the list goes on and on. There are lots of uh, testimonials that you've published of travelers and adventure-seeking, you know, vacationers taking photographs and documenting the cruelty. Uh, This has got to be getting out somehow, right? Well, it is getting out, and it's only been getting out, quite frankly, since SAVE has been organized in 2016. It it seems unimaginable, but nobody has taken this on until I formed SAVE. We do know that there have been other people and other organizations over the years who have tried to go down there and have some sort of impact, but they have been wholly unsuccessful, and they have not publicized the reality. We are the only ones who have publicized it, and therefore, directly as a result of that, um, the tribe has banned me from their land and banned anybody connected to my organization they're trying to kill the messenger instead of addressing yeah. the problem. Yeah. So it's not like they're open to dialogue with you? No, we've tried on more than one occasion, yeah. and we either get met with silence or threats from tribal attorneys regarding lawsuits or cease and desist yeah. requirements and so forth. A few years ago, a horse owner was charged with felony animal cruelty. Can you tell us what happened in that case, and how is it that charges were able to be brought at all since this is, seems to be all under the jurisdiction of the tribe? Yes, I can, and, and it is possible to do, which is one of the frustrations with all of this, because state law can be incorporated, and I'm obviously not an attorney, but somewhat creative ways to actually prosecute. Um, they are not above and completely sovereign. They're not above the law and completely sovereign. They rely on a lot of federal programs and 
the BIA is a federal agency and they provide law enforcement, so it can be done. But the case that you're referring to was um, one of the first successes that we had very early into this whole process. It was in April of 2016, after I had met with the district attorney and the BIA and the FBI, actually, all in one meeting. And told them what I was planning on doing and just pushing for action. And as a result, they they did. <laughs> um, and I was waiting at Hilltop the entire day for these four horses that uh, were of huge concern that I had found out about several months before they were gotten out of there. But the, the owner of the four horses was a tribal member by the name of Leland Joe. And there were several agencies involved in this, and they flew in on a helicopter uh, one one morning and knocked on this guy's door. The four horses were in his yard, tied up with, of course, no food and no water. And as my as I am told by the district attorney's office, and he answered and was asked, "Are these your horses?" He said, "Yes." They said, you're under arrest, and he was flown out right then and there and taken to federal prison in Flagstaff, and um, he was charged and pled guilty uh, to lesser charges, but was fined, put on a three-year probation uh, where he was not allowed to own horses, work with horses, etc. However, at some point, he apparently decided to serve out his prison term and end the probation, and I heard last summer that he was actually back at it again. Mm. Um, so did that case result in other tribe members treating their horses and no. mules better? No. No. Yeah. So to be clear, yeah. these animals, they are just of very little value and they are just worked to death and they just die? Correct. That's exactly it. Mm. Uh, they don't feed them frequently through the winter. Um, they never feed them enough when the season starts, um, as evidenced by, you know, many, many, many people coming back extremely upset by what they have seen. I could read you a couple of examples of that if you would like. Well, I'll let uh, I'll let listeners go to your website to see where you document okay. them. But explain briefly how the tour organizations are complicit in this. Well, the adventure travel companies have been offering trips down into Supai for many years now, and um, but I need to make clear right now, uh, as of 2019, the tribe has not issued any permits for these outfitters uh, to work to offer trips down there. Now, that may sound better than it really is, <laughs> because. It doesn't mean that the same things aren't happening. What it means is that they're out for this year. It doesn't mean they're out forever. They could just as easily be back next year. But the part that is good is that, you know, these outfitters were basically turning a blind eye to the abuse. They were using abused animals, whether they wanted to ever admit that or not. None of them that I spoke to ever did. And they were offering luxurious trips saying you'll get the best gourmet meals, oversized tents, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what that translates to is that all these excessive amenities were going down on the backs of starving, bleeding, yeah. abused animals. Yeah. 
So let's say I wanted to experience the beauty of those falls. Can I just hike down there or get helicoptered in there? Yes, you can. Absolutely. And, you know, we really have never as an organization, told people not to go there. But what we have wanted to do, well, two things. One is expose the abuse and say it in the strongest terms possible, under no conditions use or hire those pack animals for any reason whatsoever. And number two, to actually be aware of what you're going to be seeing down there besides pretty waterfalls, because yes, they're very pretty, But there are lots of other very pretty places that have blue-green waterfalls that don't have dying and bleeding and abused animals and trash everywhere and campgrounds, frankly, that uh, smell like urine Mm. because we've had many people write to TripAdvisor and said that very thing. They don't understand why this place is being hyped so much. What a story. Susan Ash, where can people go to learn more and to help you? Well, they can go to our website, which is havasupaihorses.org, also for a Facebook page, and to get active about this issue in your community and on social media. We need the truth exposed to a wider audience so that everyone who goes there or considers going knows about this and never considers hiring the pack animals, or better yet, don't go at all. Susan Ash, founder of SAFE, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. More with animals today after the break. Hi, this is Dr. Lori, and you're listening to Animals Today. I'm proud to say that Animals Today is now in its 12th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Visit them at aianimals.org. And if you like listening to this radio show and you like what we're doing, consider making a donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals to support the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Their website is aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And click Support Us. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to raising public awareness of dog and cat overpopulation through ISAR's Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about hummingbirds. These delightful diminutive flyers comprise more than 300 species with a range from southern Alaska to southern Chile. Thanks to their unique figure of eight pattern of wing flapping, hummingbirds can move in precise quick movements, including backwards and upside down flight. Hovering by a flower permits their long specialized tongues to reach the flower nectar before darting off to the next meal. And depending on the sugar content of the nectar, hummingbirds may consume up to their own weight of it each day. Less preferred foods include tree sap, pollen, and insects. But a lot of energy is required to sustain their metabolic rate, which is the highest of any warm-blooded animal. Their name, of course, comes from their characteristic sound produced by the rapidly flapping wings, measured at up to 80 beats per second. 
The smallest hummingbird, the bee hummingbird, can weigh less than two grams. That's less than a penny, and most weigh less than five grams. It's easy and fun to attract hummingbirds to your garden with easily available feeders and sugar solution. But here's a tip. They often get stuck in open garages after being attracted to the red color of the door's emergency release cord's handle. Their natural instinct to fly upwards to safety rather than horizontally out the opening can tire these little guys out. But by painting the handle a different color than red or wrapping it with black electrical tape, the birds won't wander into the garage. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to the show. According to the CDC, 22.5% of people in the U.S. have been infected with toxoplasmosis. Yet many or most of these people are unaware that they've had the infection. As you might know, cats also harbor toxoplasma, and they are the definitive host of this parasite. What do we need to know about toxoplasmosis? Well, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Dr. Robert Reed, who is medical director at VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital. Welcome, Robert. Hi, Lori. Nice to talk to you again. Robert, what is toxoplasmosis? Well, you know, toxoplasmosis is, for the significance of the disease, is surprisingly little known by people, even though so many people have cats and love cats, and it is so closely associated with cats. It's a disease caused by a protozoan parasite, microscopic, called Toxoplasma gondii. And it's significant with regard to cats because cats are the only definitive host for Toxoplasma, which means they're the only animals that can harbor and produce the infective form of the parasite. Okay, so explain what happens when a cat gets infected with toxoplasmosis, and how do they get the infection anyway? The cats will acquire the infection by ingesting an animal that's infected with it or by eating raw meat that may have toxoplasma insisted in the muscle of the animal. And when a cat eats the, the organism in one of its prey, it uh, the organism develops in the intestine into a form. It creates, it creates eggs and passes into the stool in the environment. And once in the environment, those eggs, after a day or two, become infective to anything that ingests them. Now, it's usually a small animal, small mammal, like a mouse, but it could be uh, a bird. It could be uh, a cow or a goat or anything that's grazing on the ground. Um, and later, if another cat eats the small animal, or is fed meat from a larger animal that's not been cooked, then they can develop the infection as well. Do you treat cats for toxoplasmosis? Yeah, most of the time you don't even know they have it. It's pretty unusual for a cat to have symptoms that you would notice about it uh, from toxoplasma. They sometimes will get a little bit lethargic, they might get a little fever, maybe a little diarrhea, go off their food for a few days, but most of the time it's not even recognized as a disease in cats, even though it has a treatment with an antibiotic. Um, interestingly though, occasionally a cat will get pneumonia or some other respiratory disease or eye problems or neurologic problems as a result of toxoplasma, but you normally wouldn't test for those things unless the cat had an unusual symptom that you couldn't find another cause for. So it often passes unnoticed in the cat, and by the time the cat is recognized as having had toxoplasma, the eggs have already passed out of them into the environment. Let's talk about infections in people. How do people get toxoplasmosis, and who is at risk for problems related to toxoplasmosis? 
Well, that's a really good question because, as you mentioned, there are an awful lot of people that have been infected with toxoplasma, but there's not really any correlation in studies that have been performed between people who own cats and people who have toxoplasma, even though cats are often recognized as being associated with toxoplasma and, in fact, many times blamed for it, it's really rare for a person to get toxoplasma from a cat. Most of the time, they're going to get it from eating undercooked meat or drinking unpasteurized milk, possibly eating vegetables or fruit that have not been washed properly, sometimes from digging in soil and then um, putting their hands in their mouth before they wash them thoroughly. What precautions, if any, should people take related to cats and toxoplasmosis risk? Well, the first thing, of course, is as many people probably do know and where they would have heard from to- of toxoplasmas because it's the parasite, the, the disease of cats that pregnant women are warned about. Right. Because at certain stages of pregnancy, if a person is, is exposed to toxoplasma for the first time, never having had it before, then there's the potential for their developing uh, fetus to be affected by the organism. And um, that's why people are often cautioned not to change litter boxes or handle cat stool during pregnancy. Um, The risk is small, but it is a general recommendation to avoid, if a person is pregnant, to avoid handling uh, the litter box or maintaining the litter box. But for the most part, there's not really any risk in having a cat if a person is pregnant or uh, more likely if they're uh, subjected to some sort of immunosuppressive condition that makes their immune system more vulnerable. Most of the time, if you avoid basic um, hygiene in, in terms of food preparation and proper cooking of meat, not allowing cats to eat raw meat, or if possible, not allowing them to hunt so that they have an opportunity to pick up toxoplasma, you can actually avoid it very easily. Um, and many times people when they learn of some of the severity and the risks, um, overreact to it. When in reality, even though it's a significant disease, it is preventable very easily. And I want to emphasize what you said earlier. People who live with cats don't necessarily get infected with toxoplasmosis more often than those without cats, correct? That is true. That's what studies have shown. Any last comments for my listeners? Well, you know, there are a few things that I would want people to to, no, to take note of when they're thinking about toxoplasma. You know, one of the things as we discussed is cats are the definitive host. So they're the only ones that can produce the infected form. And lots of people do get toxoplasma, but generally not from cats. And although cats um, are the only ones that they can get it, people get it from other sources that have to do with their own personal habits more than having the cat. And no one should shy away from having a cat simply because they have a health condition or pregnancy that, uh, that requires them to take extra precautions because simple precautions can help them avoid the risk and they still get the benefit of having that companionship that you get from a cat. Veterinarian Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.